Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the 13th episode of Season 3 of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. Um, This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Today's episode is a wrap-up overview of Damn the Torpedoes as a whole, and I'm joined for the first time by, not a guest, but a co-host, John Paulson. John's another diehard Tom Petty fan and is also the creator of the 4 for 4 Fantasy Football website and is one of the hosts of the Most Accurate podcast, which discusses and analyzes the world of fantasy football throughout the year. Um, John reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in having him on the podcast to do an album wrap-up episode whenever his schedule allows, and I figured it would be a lot of fun, so here we are. So welcome to the show, John. Oh, thanks for having me, Kevin. I just want to say thanks for uh, tackling this project. I mean, I've been thinking about doing a Tom Petty uh, album centric podcast for, for years now. And it's just, I hadn't got a format down or the time down to do it. And uh, so I reached out to you and just suggested this idea because I think the, you know, the podcasting world is sort of lacking in Tom Petty content. I think he's deserving of a lot more than what he's uh, recognition that he's been getting, in, at least in the podcasting world. So this is a, a great format. I really enjoy uh, your song by song analysis and uh, thanks again for tackling this project so yeah you said your time has been a little bit cramped and that's obviously because you've got a very busy schedule with fantasy football so tell me a little bit about that because i'm curious I, i've sort of d- dabbled my toes into the waters of fantasy sport but never really sort of plunged in full so give me some background on that yeah i sort of uh, joined the industry back in 2000 i won a rank- rankings accuracy contest and uh, ended up at four for four a couple of years later and it's been a full-time job since then um, it's been a lot of fun. I've sort of found my niche, uh, in this industry after being, uh, an industrial engineer, uh, for several years. That's why I was in Memphis, uh, uh, for, for several years after college. And I moved out here to California and that's sort of, uh, you know, I have, have a, a feeling of, uh, kin- kinship with, uh, Tom Petty and that he, uh, you know, grew up in the South. I grew up in Wisconsin, but we both headed out to California and was kind of, are kind of, uh, amazed by the state and kind of fell in love with the state. So, um, as far as fantasy goes, I've been doing this podcast for 10 years. If you want to check it out, it's great. But, uh, you know, I'm here to talk Tom Petty today. Perfect. Let's do that then. Um, so what do you remember your first sort of experience of hearing Tom Petty or, or the first time you sort of, it became more than just another band or another artist that you listened to and it became, Oh, actually now I'm a Tom Petty fan. Do you remember that sort of evolution? Yeah, it was, it was definitely full moon fever when, uh, you know, you hear the stories, um, about people hearing, uh, full moon fever for the first time and falling in love with him there. Uh, that was what it was for me. I was aware of him and the hits, uh, prior to that. Uh, but then you, you see the video for, uh, uh, free falling and I won't back down and you start to fall in love with these songs on the radio. Uh, I bought that, uh, that album, much like uh, Rick Rubin did and played it over and over and over again. I think I was 16, uh, at that time. And I think at that point, um, you know, it was a front to back album for me. So I would listen to the whole thing. I don't think there's a bad song on the album, although, uh, Tom said in the past, he didn't know how zombie zoo ended up <laughs> on the track list, <laughs> but that's another podcast. Um, I, I went back then at that point and I bought the, uh, live, uh, album pack up the plantation, uh, just because, you know, funds were a little limited. I didn't have time to, or the money to dig into, uh, all of his, disc- you know, past discography or his, his, you know, all the albums of the past and, that one had a lot of hits on it that I had recognized. And then I started to dig in. I think uh, Dan, the torpedoes was probably the third uh, petty album that I owned. 
And so what did you think of that album when the first time you heard it? So obviously you would have been aware of Refugee, Here Comes My Girl, some of those tracks you would know. But when you sort of dig into the, some of those deeper cuts, were, were they, did they just jump off the page for you the same way they did for me? Yeah, for me, um, you know, Don't Do Me Like That is is the banger on that album. And the fact that they, that was, you know, on side two was interesting to me. I thought the first three tracks were just amazing one after another. Um, really, if, if you're, if you, if you want to get into early, early Teddy, this is a good one to just put on because those first three tracks are so strong. And then he gives you a picture in that rest of that album of his songwriting. And, you know, maybe some of the, some of the tracks aren't as popular, but they're really well-written. There's some great moments in all of them. Um, you know, for me, uh, I I just kept going with Full Moon Fear and into the Great Wide Open, and uh, you know, you start getting into some of his later stuff. That was that was that Wildflowers, obviously. That was the era for me that turned me into a huge Tom Petty fan. Um, but it's always been fun to go back to these early albums, put them on, listen to them, and maybe you notice some things you didn't notice the first you know forty times you listened to them. Well, it's funny you say that too. So like. You, you you always have a different relationship with an artist's music once you're a fan, and then once they start releasing albums, then with the music they released before you became a fan, right? Because there's a different connection to it. When when an album drops and you go rush out and buy the album, you put it on, you listen to that album for the first time before any of those songs have really been played or heard before, there's just something really, really different about that. It's the same thing I had that with Foo Fighters. I got into Foo Fighters really late, and then I think the first album they released after I'd sort of become a fan was Wasting Light, and that's my favorite Foo Fighters album because it was the first one I got really hyped about hearing for the first time and sort of bringing home. And so I think, you know, and I, I didn't get that with Tom because I got into him way too late to actually have that experience. But man, listening to Wildflowers for the first time, that must have just been a, an absolutely mind-blowing kind of experience. Yeah, and that that, that album was, it was a kind of a departure for him. So yeah. you're sort of, you know, you're used to this uh, uh, sunny pop, California pop rock, uh, but, you know, classic pop type just catchy songs on full moon fever and into the great wide open. Uh, and then that was, that was a little, I wouldn't say darker, uh, but it was more introspective and more personal and, you know, wildflowers is a, you know, the track is amazing. And yeah. you know, the, the first half of that album just grabs you. And then I think the second half of that album is, you know, you're, you're digging in and it takes a few more lessons for you to get into some things. I mean, yeah. honeybee for me was one, it was an immediate song. I mean, I yeah. really liked that. And that was a concert favorite. Um, but you know, I think wildflower, like you look at what he did in his mid thirties to mid forties, when most artists are either packing it up or just yeah. doing a nostalgia tour and, and the songwriting that he did in that span was just, you know, incredible with that, with the Woolberries and his solo stuff and then, and everything else. So just a, just a tremendous uh, songwriter and one of my favorites of all time. When you talk about that, I've talked about that with other people on the podcast too, about even the last three albums, you know, when you, when you hit Hypnotic Eye, now he's in his fifties, late fifties, you know, we're starting to get into sort of the twilight typically of a rocker's career where most guys are really winding down. Like you said, now we're into the greatest hits tour or we're doing the, you know, the third or fourth comeback tour like Kiss Tom Petty's and the Heartbreakers are still doing the ascendancy. They're still writing songs that are challenging. They're challenging their own sort of sound. They're challenging their own direction, but they're still, they're still rock and roll songs. They still sound like the Heartbreakers. So to me, that's always been fascinating that there was still a, clearly a lot more output there than just those last few. Obviously we never got those, but there would have been more to come. I think. I think from a, from a live standpoint, you know, I've seen a lot of bands of his generation live and I think the way that I judge them is, you know, when there's a new song, how does that hold up with the rest of their hits? Yeah. 
And, you know, all the way through his career, he was still writing bangers. I call them bangers. They're just tracks that really work. And they work within the set lists that he would put together and they wouldn't be ones where, Oh, you hear it. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to go get a beer or whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> like it's there, there are ones like, Oh, I wanted to hear saving grace. You know, I wanted yeah. to hear that live. Um, so I think that's one way to, to judge that generation is, is to see how, you know, how many people are walking to the seats you know, or heading, heading for the, uh, for the aisles, trying to get a, get a drink at the, at the, at the counter um, when there's when the new tracks are coming on, because uh, you know, that, that really, when you can when you can write songs that hold up, you know, in your fifties, sixties, sure. that that's pretty incredible. And even some of those songs are not necessarily singles. You know, some of those right. live songs that he put in the set, especially from those later albums like Fault Lines, that's not a single, but yeah, no one's leaving their seat when that comes on, right? Yeah, or like Square One. That's one of his, you know, my favorite songs he's he's ever written, and that's you know yeah. came off a later album, and uh, you know, just an incredible track. It's funny too, though. It's like you said, it kind of lines up with what Jimmy Iovine said when they were sequencing the track list. And you said, you know, those first three tracks are just, it's, it's unbelievable that that's all written in the same span. And then two of them were on the same tape that Mike Campbell sent to Tom. I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous on its, on its face. But Jimmy Iovine said, I want to hear the singles up top. Because, you know, and I commented on this, the first two albums, I find the sequencing on those ones a little bit odd. And I know that the the sleeve of the first record was a problem and that caused them, you know, people thought they were a punk band and all this kind of stuff. But I also think when you're coming out with that lead track, um, Rocking Around With You, it's not the strongest track off the album. And if you're dropping the needle on an album for the first time, you probably should leave with something that's going to grab you and hold you, right? So I totally get where Irene's coming from. Um, and again, I think the sequencing on Down the Torpedoes is phenomenal. Maybe we'll get into it. But uh, so let's, yeah, let's talk about the record. Let's talk about the, okay. uh, totally Sounds the good. So Refugee, give me your thoughts on Refugee. Uh, Refugee is obviously a great track. Um, it's not my favorite on the album, um, but and I think that comes from uh, hearing it so often in concert. Now, I know you didn't get a chance to see Tom live. I was trying to put a list together of all the times I've seen him uh, and the Heartbreakers live, and I I got to 10, and I think it's more, but I can't right. place all the different guys. So I was really <laughs> fortunate that I was able to see him so many times. Um, but the refugee was always one that you knew was going to get played. And I think for my, you know, I'm a, when I'm at concerts, I want to hear certain songs and there's certain, you know, and I, and I know we're going to hear refugee. It's going to take up a spot in the set list and the yep. crowd's going to love it. And it's going to be a good time, but I heard it every single time. So I think for me, it, it wasn't like overplayed or anything like that, but re- with respect to this album, um, it's probably my fourth favorite song on the album. Um, but obviously if you look at it from a construction standpoint or if you just took it in a vacuum and this is the first time you're hearing this song it's an amazing song i mean it's, the performance on it's phenomenal uh the music's great his vocal performance is, is is great um and it's a great one to open the album yeah i totally agree with that i mean i'm the same way with sort of bohemian rhapsody by queen or stay with heaven by i don't need to listen to those songs anymore because they're they're so seared onto my synapses because i've heard them so often that and it doesn't mean that i don't love them but i don't I don't really need to hear those anymore. It's, it's, it's the deep cuts that generally tend to grab you, which maybe is a little unfair because like you said, that riff, just just right out the gate, that opening riff just blows you away. Mike Campbell's guitar on that song is is just tremendous. All the way through, and, and Tom's vocal as well, right? I mean, I can't, I really struggle singing that song. It's right at the end of my range. I can just about do it some days. If I've, especially if I've had a couple of beers and I'm a little bit looser, I can just about hit it. But otherwise, it's a tough one to sing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think he was talking about the, 
the the, the challenges of of singing it. Like he had to, it took him a while to figure it out. And that was one where they, I think Ben Mott said in one of the interviews, he or Mike, oh, Mike Campbell said it, uh, 150 takes at least of Refugee yeah. are out there uh, trying to get it right because they were trying to do everything live. Yeah, with in the studio, so they were trying, and that had to be a big challenge with that song because that's pretty intricate. Absolutely, yeah. And you think about sort of, I think later in his career, Tom didn't actually tune down a lot of his songs. From watching sort of, you watch sort of, you know, the stuff from eighty three, eighty one, eighty two, eighty three, and then from sort of two thousand fifteen, sixteen, even the fortieth, the fortieth anniversary tour. Most of the songs he's singing in the original key, but I think that that one might be one that you'd have to sort of say, well, let's just step that down half a step or a full step. That, that's fine. No one's going to notice. You know? Yeah, you go from uh, you know singing that in your 20s to singing that in your 70s. That's a big challenge. Yeah, not a lot to do that, right? There's no, there's no shame in doing that. So, Okay, what about Here Comes My Girl? Um, phenomenal track. Uh, it, that, that's just one, especially with the, the, the way he's sort of speaking over uh, the opening and yeah. and all that that really grabbed grabs you as a you know person who's you know aware of the song but you're you're listening to it maybe the first time within the context of refugee but you know before after refugee and after, uh, before uh, even the losers uh, and just how great of a track it is and yeah. um you know the oh shelly here comes my girl whatever he's saying there is just an incredible uh, moment i think in the album well i like the there's the, the little bit before they go to the bridge and it's just one that says watch her walk and it's a throwaway yeah. line. You know, it doesn't really sort of, con- but it, I think without that line leading into that bridge, you lose a little bit of the the mystique maybe or sort of the charisma of the song. And it's one of my, it's absolutely one of my favorites. It's one that I always go back to. And again, it's one of those that I've heard a million times, but I can hear a million more because it's so good. And it's nice that they do drop that sort of tempo off a little bit from Refugee. The Refugee comes out the gate like a, you know, a horse that's bolted. Mm-hmm. Here comes my girl, okay, now we're, we're not just sort of putting out, this is not just going to be 10 straight ahead rock and roll songs. We've got a little bit of a change of gears here before obviously the rest of the side one is again, pretty much straight ahead rock and roll. So I kind of like that sort of that switch up in the early on in that, uh, on that side of the album. Yeah. I think he, uh, I, I noticed it after watching somewhere or is it somewhere under heaven, the the documentary about wildflowers, somewhere you feel uh, free, the making of somewhere you feel free. Sorry yeah. about that. Uh, somewhere you feel free on YouTube. I believe it was on YouTube. Um, yeah but talking about sequencing and how important sequencing was to him. So then I went back to listen to wildflowers again, and you just notice it goes from maybe fast acoustic to slower, you know, mid tempo rocker. Yeah. And then, you know, he's changing it up constantly. You don't have the same type of songs one after another. Uh, and I think you, you, when you go back and listen to these albums now within that context, it's pretty impressive and, and how much thought he put into the sequencing. I'm sure uh, Jimmy, I mean, had you know a lot to do with that as well. But you know, he wasn't putting stacking the same type of song over and over again to where it got kind of mundane. And I think that some of that I was gonna, yeah, I think some of that is one of the things that Tom was absolutely brilliant at was learning from other people, and whether that's sort of taking from his influences as musicians or listening to his bandmates or his producers. The sequencing of his albums definitely changed. Like I said, I, I think the first two albums were sequenced. A little bit weirdly to me, I would definitely sequence those albums differently. You know, layperson from Saskatoon who's never released an album, but um, but I think from then on, they definitely took more care over that. And those three, what I call the Iovine trilogy, and I know that again, Southern Comfort, Southern Accents is definitely Southern Comfort. Southern Accents is an Iovine album, but it kind of is, it kind of isn't to me. But those three, all three of them, the sequencing on those albums is just immaculate. You wouldn't change one song out of order, you know? Oh, I wouldn't anyway. 
Yeah, and you, you're you're talking about how much he learned probably in that span, like going from yep. the the first album where I, I believe they put American Girl as the last track on that album. And, and yep. if you are trying to if you have a band and you're trying to break break out or break you know break into the industry, yes. I would think that would be first. Uh, you would you think know, so. Maybe you maybe you start with American Girl and then go <laughs> break down after that, and you're like, oh, this is a band to pay attention to, as opposed to burying it on you know the last track. Uh, but uh, you know, and then you get into the third album, and I think all of those issues are sort of uh, sorted out. Yeah, and just having that steady hand, someone who's sort of you know, because I mean, the first album, from what I've read, Denny Cordell produced, but they were kind of left to their own devices with Noah Shark and more or less with the engineers, and sort of sort of figure that out yourselves. And Denny would come in and say, well, maybe redo this or redo this. But he wasn't sort of hands-on like Jimmy Iovine was. And mm-hmm. obviously that definitely created tension with, especially with Stan, when you've got someone who's really hands-on now and is going to tell you, well, no, that's crap. You need to do that again. That doesn't sound right. We need to, you know. So I think, again, that experience of learning studio craft is totally different to stagecraft, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a great live band is one thing. A great studio band is another. There are fewer of them that are brilliant at both. And I think that learning curve, like I said, going into those the, the, the Irvine sort of albums, that's where they sort of came out. Okay, well, now we know exactly what we're doing. We know how to make records now. We've always been able to play songs, but now we know how to make records. Yeah, and I think that you talked about Tom learning from other people. He just, I think he was just a brilliant man and was always aware of his own shortcomings and uh, was able to work on his, his faults like anybody that's really trying yep. to get really good at their craft. He's so determined to do that. Um, so he's not going to just poo-poo an idea because he didn't think of it so yeah. um yeah so that, that's just something another thing that made him so great well again don't we, i've talked about i talked about that with paul i think paul zolo um or maybe john scott we were talking about that you know most young men in their teens in their early 20s they're getting into rock and roll for different reasons and you know maybe it's the party and maybe it's the girls and i'm sure that always that's going to play in but right early on you could tell that Tom and Mike, especially, and Ben Mont, were very focused on, well, the music's got to be good first. Everything else we'll deal with later. And there's, there was the no girls on the bus rule, you know, which is uh, probably pretty unusual for a young rock band touring the country back then. Um, so that real focus on getting the craft right. So that's exactly what you're saying, right? So we need to make sure that we're writing the best songs we can write. Every single take is the best take we can we can do. And then we build out from there. And that's, that's how we actually get good is, is getting that stuff right first, getting the foundations right. So totally agree. So what about um, Even the Losers, track three? <laughs> Even the Losers. Another concert favorite. Always really happy to hear this one come on. The crowd would go crazy. Just the nostalgia, I think, in the yeah. in the lyrics. Um, you know, it, it just hits you right from the start. Well, it was an early summer. We sat on your roof, uh, smoked cigarettes, and stared at the moon. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a good opener. And then, you know, the story behind it and and the chorus where he didn't yeah. know it. And and when they decided they were going to record and he was like, oh, yeah, let's, let's do a take didn't have the chorus and he says those like lightning hit him and maybe one of the you know one of the best choruses he's written yeah uh but he didn't even have really have time to think of it he just it just came to him which is pretty cool can you imagine like i just that blows me away like i mean going in with nothing and coming coming out with i mean coming out with something most people can do and i know that excuse me sorry um, I'm a big Genesis fan too. And Phil Collins, the way they wrote was they'd all sit in the studio and they'd write the music together. And Phil Collins would just sort of scat over top. He'd just mumble nonsense sort of melody lines and they'd try to pick out things. But to go up to the mic with literally nothing and then that to come out, dear God, I mean, that's just a different level of uh, different level of talent. Yeah, that's what, and that's what, you know, sort of 
leads me to believe that this this album and this track were meant to be you know i yeah. i like to hear the story like he's like trying to explain the even losers get lucky sometimes and how he was um you know hitting oh constantly hitting on this one girl and trying to yeah. you know be, be your boyfriend or just get together or whatever and finally she sort of relented and she said this isn't going to happen long term <laughs> but but for tonight it's it's okay yeah um, i think that that's just a great story behind that 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 lyric and he said that it's a it was sort of a live obviously a live staple was that one of those songs i imagine it was it was as soon as that kicks off i'm sure the crowd just surges right it's one of those that everyone gets up straight away yes i think his fan base really anytime here comes my girl even losers you know were, were played uh big big uh concert favorites because they were just the you know the classics that everybody loved that got uh, them into him yeah. And it wasn't something I think it wasn't something you were expecting to hear in every show. I think maybe, you know, after this album came out, yes, you're going to hear it in every single show. But when I was seeing him in the 90s and the, and the aughts, mainly, yeah. uh, it was, you know, here and there you get one or the other, but you wouldn't get both. Or maybe you did get both. It was incredible. Um, so it was, it was one of those little treats because he had such a deep catalog that he could put together a 20, 25 song playlist and leave out a few hits. I always think about that Tom Petty, Springsteen, you know, uh, Dylan, John, how do you, how do you put together a 20, no wonder there's concerts for so long, right? Cause what the hell do you drop? What don't you play? And again, you've got, you've got the stuff they have to play really. There's, you know, or like you said, I mean, they didn't always play refugee. They didn't always play. Well, I think American girl might be the one that that's the one that you kind of have to put in the show, but that's one of the things I've always admired about Tom is they did put in, you know, they'll put in something from, let me up. I've had enough. Or they'll, they'll throw some. They'll, they'll do jamming me where they haven't done it for twenty years, but they'll go back to it. So I kind of mm-hmm. really appreciate that. But some of those songs, I, was, I remember listening to an interview with um, a rock band called Clutch. I don't know if you're familiar with Clutch. Yeah. Have you, yeah. yeah. So Neil Fallon was saying that they were supporting Motorhead back way way back in their sort of their early days, and um, there was one show where they didn't play Electric Worry. And they came off stage and Lemmy said to them, why the hell didn't you play Electric Worry? He said, oh, well, you know, we sort of change it up every night and we like to do different things. He said, dude, that's your ace of spades. That's the one song that people have come to hear you play. And I think sort of there are some of those songs, American Girl might be the one that you sort of have to play. But there's some of those other ones here, Come By Girl, even The Loser's Refugee. As long as you're getting one of them, maybe two of them, then I think you're doing, I think you're doing fine, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, American Girl was always played. Refugee was almost always played. And I think in, the, in all the concerts that I saw, he played yeah. it. So it was a 95%, 99% type, uh, you know, made the set list. Maybe there was a, a, a tour where they were a little sick of playing it. But when I looked up setlist.fm, just yeah. kind of look at his historical track listings. That was Refugee is the second most played after American Girl, but American yeah. Girl is definitely, you definitely knew you were going to hear that. Yeah, for sure. And it's always funny looking through that when you go to the artist statistics, because obviously it's something that I go back to for each episode to see how often tracks are played. And some of the tracks that were never played live are really surprising. You think, wow, that's because you think like, you know, what are you doing in my life? You would think, you talk about bangers, talk about stadium rock songs. Holy crap. I mean, that would just get the place absolutely hopping, but very very rarely played so you sort of think about okay well maybe he's picking okay if i'm going to do two two three songs from down the torpedoes i don't know whether i can really sacrifice one of the others to put that in the set list but obviously i occasionally did but i was just going to say that it's it's a you know how do you take that and leave here comes my girl off or even losers off or don't do me like that off like that that's the choice that's like a sophie's choice that he probably got he wants to play it maybe but but he he also was really um big about his fans having a great experience and, and going to see Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers and not leaving disappointed. So he would 
like yeah. a lot of bands, like they would, they would really ramp their, the energy of their setup to the end. And they would, you know, the close with, you know, close the main set with two or three really great songs. And then the, the, the encore would be amazing. Um, and then he just would, he wouldn't leave out the ones that you're expecting to hear, like the ones you have to hear. Yeah. So that was big for him, I think. And big for his fans. Okay. Let's move on to track four shadow of a doubt, a complex kid. Yeah, this is one that, yeah, I, I would just say that this is one that has sort of grown on me as time has gone on. And I think I, I, you know, I've listened to this album quite a few times uh, as, as I was in my nineties, in the nineties and the aughts and listening to, to old Petty, it was typically throw on the greatest hits album, the, the, yeah. the really outstanding greatest hits album. But then every, every once in a while you go back to damn the torpedoes and this is one that, you know, it's following three really good songs, but it holds up pretty well. Like, it's not my favorite, but uh, it's, it's a good, a good solid song. Yeah, it's one of the ones that I sort of, I don't have on my massive petty playlist for when I'm going out doing my long distance running, whatever it might be. I don't have it on there. And it's not that, again, not that I don't like it, but there's other songs that I definitely am going to listen to first. But as you said, and there's another song on this album that when we get to it is the same thing. It's a sleeper where when you do hear it again, you're like, Oh, actually, yeah, I, I I quite like that song. That's that's a good song. Now, I rated this one a seven out of ten because, again, I don't. When you stack it up against everything else on side one, to me, it's 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 back of that a little bit, right? But it's not like again, it's not a bad song. And I've gone into this pro this whole project really with the idea that I'm I'm not. I don't think that I'm going to be able to slam any of the songs. There's not a single Tom Petty song that I think, I, man, I hate that song. There's not really one that I skip. There's some stuff that I love and there's some stuff that I, yeah, that's okay. That's a sort of an average Tom Petty song. No, an average Tom Petty song is still better than most other artists' greatest hits. Right. But but so this one for me sort of lands in that place where it's sort of, yeah, it's good, but it's just I think it's just sort of a, not a placeholder. That's not the right word. But it's giving a little bit of space because you it, there's something like, don't do me like that. What are you doing in my life is on side two. If you put all those on side one, then you'd have less left for side two. So I think that that might have played into that decision making. I don't know if you... Yeah, I mean, I you look at side two, how it starts with Don't Do Me Like That, which is an old much, we don't need to t- talk too much about it right now, but yeah. you could have put that forth. Yeah. And you're looking at one of the greatest album sides <laughs> of all time. You yeah. are probably still are. Um, but I think this is a classic like album track. Like they knew that it wasn't yeah. like going to be a giant hit, but um, it's a solid track and they found something that could follow even the losers and not look, not look terrible. <laughs> Yeah, and and again, not not one that was played live very often. Um, I no. don't think it was included in any of the compilations, really. But then we head into Century City, which of course has a great, again, a great backstory. Talking about you know even the losers has that backstory. Century City, well, they're going through all this bankruptcy stuff, and they're trying to record this album when they don't really have a deal yet in place. Um, so Century City comes out of that sort of that frustration of dealing with all these suits. What do you think of that song? It's a closer of side one. Yeah, and I think that they did that on purpose because I think you're trying to you know finish strong uh to get some you know people to turn the, the record over and listen to side yeah you know side two um it's not my favorite i think this would probably be, if, if there was a track that i needed to cut for another i mean I, I do have a sleeper track that i'd like to add from the b-sides yeah um but this is probably the one that's just like uh i i could i could take it or leave it um it has a pretty good beat it's up tempo it's a kind of a rocker um i think maybe over the last five or 10 years as I watched the documentaries and stuff, it just seems like it came out of a negative place for him. And I kind of, kind of, kind of sense that when I listen to it now that he hated going to Century city, dealing with the lawyers, it was like his absolute least favorite thing to do. Um, and so that sort of kind of translated to the song for me a little bit. No, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, 
for me, it's always been one of those that I just, I love the, I love the tempo of it so much. And I like the chorus. It's just kind of, it's so simple and so sort of brash in a way. Like it's, it's sort of, it's got a bit more of a punky sort of feel to it than anything else on the album. So I kind of like it for that. But as you said, and that's, that's where we get back to our generation. We grew up with vinyl. First song should draw, draw you in. The last song should make you want to jump off the couch, go flip the vinyl and get straight into side two. Right. And I think it, it definitely serves as that anchor for side two, yeah. but starting off with side Starting off with side two, now we get Don't Do Me Like That. So what do you think? What do you think of this one? This is one of my favorite of his of all time. I think this is yep. my favorite track on the album. I don't think it's head and shoulders above, for me, Here Comes My Girl, even the losers, yep. but it's 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 right there with Here Comes My Girl, one, two for me. Um, it just is really well put together track. The organ's great. Uh, the lyrics are great. The beat's great. Um, just a phenomenal song. And I think it was really interesting that this was a mud crutch tune that he sort of passed on for his first two albums. Like they had this available to him and he didn't want to record it. Uh, and then uh, Jimmy went back and listened to I think everything that they had uh, prior to, you know, starting to record this album and he dusted off a couple from the mud crutch days. And this was one of them. And, and what a, what a song to dust off. Now this is a their second biggest hit uh, yep. top 10 hit the first top 10 hit. Um, the only other top 10 hit that they had on their main billboard charts was, uh, or it was actually just a solo hit was uh, free fallen. Um, and this is one that wouldn't always get played. So this is in, in concert. So this is always one that I wanted to hear. And I think this is part of the reason maybe I'm a little not over refugee, but not seeking yep. to hear it out all the time is because I always wanted to hear, don't do me like that in concert. And he played it probably 75% of the time, 60% of the time. So it was, yeah. it was one of those that you had to roll the dice and, and hope you got one where, where he played this. Yeah, and you talk about the composition of it. I, I think that it's, to me, it's, I could make a very strong argument musically for this being the, the best song on the album. Just because, of, and again, the, there's little things like, you know, where Ben Mont's playing that, just din, 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 and he stays on that minor chord through the rest of the chord progression. Little things like that, you know, that, that's pulling a trick from the Beatles, right? Where love, love me do, the harmony is one line. So you pull in all those little elements in and then you get these beautiful sort of organ sweeps it just sounds so big and full and glorious that yeah, you can't help get but get drawn in by that song. Yeah, so I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed listening to your breakdown of this song. Like that was that I listened. Oh, I, thank you. Yeah, I, I listened to your pod and then I went back to listen to the song again and I noticed a lot of these things that I don't didn't notice the first time or the first thousand times I've listened yeah. to the song. So uh, there's one reason this podcast is so great. And it's it's just you know you sit and listening and and sometimes like I literally I'll okay what's it. Oh, because then you get just the one channel because they were brilliant out there, right? I mean, they were brilliant at sort of stereo mixing and, and making sure that things are in positions where you can sort of really hear them distinctly, especially the guitars, you know, making sure that Mike and Tom's guitars are mixed into the different channels. And then again, I I don't know about you, but I think that Jimmy Iovine really recognized that Benmont was a massive part of the live sound of the Heartbreakers, where he was really mixed very, very low on those first two records. He was sort of pushed out to the periphery, where Dan the Torpedoes, especially his ham and his organ sound, I mean, this this again, this song is all about that, that that organ. There's really not much going on with the guitars. It's all driven, that melody is all driven by the organ, right? Yeah, it has a little bit of an R&B feel, and it's a different yeah. vocal for for Tom. And uh, he, I mean, I think on this album, he showed his range and all the different things that he could do. And that's, yeah. that's you know, that's just one of the great things about his vocals. When I, I keep saying to anyone who listened, 
probably, I mean, everyone says, you know, everyone knows that he's recognized as one of the greatest songwriters of all time. But to me, easily one of the best rock and roll vocalists. I mean, okay, you talk about, you know, Plant and Freddie Mercury and, and Dio and these guys, but they're, they're a different animal. They're sort of belters and they're doing the same thing most of the time. Petty could phrase things totally different. So it didn't even sound like the same singer sometimes. I think about US 41 from Mojo. You, if you threw that on and then you threw on, you know, uh, don't do me like that or here comes my girl, people wouldn't think that's the same singer. I don't think. Yeah. And not, not only that, or not only the, like the, the breadth of his ability to, to sing different, different ways. And uh, it was just also his personality. I think yeah. you, you talk about a lot of front men and they don't, they didn't have a sense of humor. Uh, the crowd ate him, ate it up whenever he was talking in between songs that yeah. he, he had something funny to say. And um, I think the personality really shined through in, in his lyrics. I mean, it, it and his perform, vocal performance, uh, you don't, you don't get that with everybody. Like that's a pretty rare talent on top of that being such a great songwriter. Yeah. So I've obviously haven't seen him live so often. Was he a talker? Like, did he, was it sort of two or three songs? Then we'll have a little bit of a story or was it sort of, yeah, was balance I, that? you know, there's a few, uh, full concerts available on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, those are, you, he would typically pare it down, uh, and wouldn't talk as much for those, I think for those performances. Uh, but he would, um, Certainly, like I, if you go back to break the live breakdown on Pack Up the Plantation, that opening yeah. where the uh, audience um, sings like the first portion of the song, which I just love because he just let him do it. And then he comes, chimes in, he goes, You're going to put me out of a job. And everybody's <laughs> like, you know, it's a one off, you know, nothing that he's planning, but it's just for him to have come up. He's a very witty guy, obviously yeah. a great writer, great turn of phrase. And it was, it was hilarious. Uh, he wasn't cracking jokes like, you know, a stand-up comedian, but he would always yeah. have something witty, right to say. And and when he spoke, people paid attention because he didn't he didn't sit there and pontificate at the, on the at the mic very often. Well, that's that's what makes this show special, right? I mean, the the songs, like you said, I mean, you, you're going to hear maybe fifty percent ish of the same songs each time you go. So those little moments where something different happens, where it's unplanned, those are things that stick with you, and they're those things that you remember. You know, that's why again, going back to Foo Fighters, have always been one of my favorite live acts because Dave Grohl's just a—he's insane, he's crazy on stage. You know, and he doesn't have the same patter. I saw Van Halen, and you could tell that all the stuff was the same thing they said in every single arena. And it gets a bit fake and false. You think, eh. Yeah, just just play the songs if you're going to do that, because I don't really need to listen to Pablum. But if Tom was one of those who was a raconteur as well as sort of a, you know, a bit of a wit, that just makes it all the better, right? And I think people do, like you said, people feed off that. So Yeah, he was he was sort of commenting on something that would happen in that particular show, too. Yeah. So something, whatever it would be, but um, maybe Mike felt, Mike Stan fell over or something, something strange that yeah. you wouldn't, you it wouldn't be planned. Um, that, that's what kind of made it sort of unique to each show. So did you see, did you see him live with Stan or was Steve already in place by the uh, time you got to see I him think live I, the first time the my first tour it probably was with uh probably was still a stand that okay. uh was the full moon fever uh no it was the uh into the great wide open tour where they had a giant tree on stage yeah that would have been so i think yeah, it, that at that stand. point he still would have been um playing yeah. drums yeah perfect though um okay next track you tell me very different song yeah this is you know i I really dug into the second half of this album in preparation for this podcast. So I listened to this album yeah. like a bunch of times just to, so I was <laughs> speak intelligently about it. <laughs> uh, you tell me like something that if I hadn't been coming on this podcast, I would be like, what, what, what song is this again? Um, but 
having listened to it a few times, these are the earworms that he is able to put on the yeah. second uh, sides of albums. And this, this is a nice mid-tempo type rocker. I enjoy it. Um, uh, certainly one I would keep. Uh, just pretty little, nice little tune. And it's got a, it's got, it's got a swagger to it. It's got that funk swagger to it. And again, you bring in Duck Dunn on bass and you're getting a different sound because Ron Player plays very differently to Duck Dunn. I don't think that Ron Player would have played... Oh, I shouldn't say couldn't have played it, but he wouldn't have played... Definitely wouldn't have played it the same way. And I think you would have lost some of that. Again, it's just got that sort of groove to it. Again, you talked earlier about R&B. This one's definitely got an R&B feel to it, right? Like it's got mm-hmm. that real sort of slow, loose... And again, like a real sort of drawled vocal, which I again, we talk about what he could do. He can belt, he can sit in that high range, or he's going to sit and draw and really lay on the southern accent a little bit thicker, which mm-hmm. I think he does a little bit more in this song, right? So, And it wasn't one I was super familiar with either. You know, again, going back and doing the the heavy listen, it's one of those, oh yeah, I remember this track now. Okay, yeah, I remember which one this is. But don't know it very well, and then you think, actually, yeah, no, that's still quite like No, it. I, I, this is one where I added it to a couple of playlists because I, you know, yep. I liked it. And and once I listened to it five or six times in a row or, or whatever, uh, I added it. Like yeah. something that something about his album tracks that if you listen to them enough, they end, you end up liking them. Absolutely. So again, album, talk about album tracks and deep cuts. I think "What Are You Doing in My Life," the penultimate track from the from side two, might be my favorite deep cut from the first five albums let's say because it's okay. just so much freaking fun man i don't know about what are your thoughts on it i i like it it's it's a banger uh it's up tempo it's a rocker i think they he talked about uh you know dusting it off and playing it for a benefit uh never yes. really you know played it live uh prior to that and he's like well this really does hold up and the, you know the crowd enjoyed it so they must have you know heard it on the album and, and liked it as well but you know the story behind this is just kind of a vague story about a uh, a groupie that he was yeah. uh, dealing with in new york or something and just kind of annoying person that would with girls following him around and trying to insert herself into his life yeah. uh so it's a little bit of a negative connotation to it but it's 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 certainly an interesting track and an up-tempo and it keeps the album moving into into louisiana rain well i'm trying to remember what's that there's there's a couple of lines in it that i just absolutely love i'm trying to look through yeah, that some friend of a friend of a friend of mine that that repeat as a songwriter usually you would you wouldn't want to do that because it's you you sort of using the same word over and over but it it works so well and then there's you know what's the what's the other one I, there was another line there I love I can't remember what it is anyway you're, you're putting my name all around in the street honey where did you think this was going to lead yeah <laughs> maybe well, you they, tell me which one for me. <laughs> yeah well they get um, well you're the last woman in the world that thrills me now you got my girlfriend trying to kill me so like i said there's that sense of humor right there's that sort of right. little cheeky twinkle in the eye that says you know i can we can have a little bit of fun with this too and i sort of i always think that rock and roll should have a little bit of that and sometimes it some bands lose that so you know like a band like metallica or slipknot i don't know they're that's a, again a different animal but even bands like iron maiden will they'll do something that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek and a little bit silly at times. And I think having that looseness and having that sort of sense of humor, I, I like that in a rock and roll band. When I go to a rock and roll concert, I want it to be fun. Yeah. He does, he's not one that took himself too seriously either. No. Like, I mean, he would make jokes and stuff, but he didn't like, he would. he's also pretty humble. So yeah, he, he was able to take shots at himself a little bit as well. Well, I love that saying, you know, take what you do very seriously, never take yourself seriously. I think that's a good, a good way to get through your life, I think. That's a, it is. So leading into the last track, Louisiana Rain. Yeah, I listened to your episode last night uh, about this, and I remember listening to this the last few times, and I was just really put off by that opening yeah. 45, 50 seconds. And 
it didn't it doesn't fit within the context of the album really i can see benmont putting out an album of this stuff and it would be amazing <laughs> if it was just like, it was yeah. all sort of futuristic keyboards stuff um it, it's really strange to have this here uh and then it, it kind of takes away from the from the song uh, i think louisiana rain if you'd just gone right into it it would have been a, a better sequence between these two tracks but maybe they were trying to segue somehow or give benmont a, a minute to do something weird um but uh, the track itself louisiana rain i think is a really solid uh closer i love when uh bands close songs with or close albums with slower uh, more pensive songs that sort of kind yeah. of bring you down at the end of the album uh maybe lead into their next project or whatever um and this this certainly qualifies i think the lyrics are really vivid and paint a picture and he's talking about california he's talking about louisiana he's talking about yeah. uh, south carolina so it's kind of a troubadour type story going along with it and uh it's really well done uh um and this is one i've grew to appreciate more as i listen to the album more and more uh preparation for this podcast i like that comment the um it's got that troubadour feel to it it's got that wandering sort of vagrant traveling musician type thing steve earl did made a career out of that right i mean he wrote so many songs that had that sort of feel especially about the south and i like that idea there's some the imagery of louisiana rain it's got that really sort of I kind of want to go to Louisiana and stand in the rain just because it seems like there might be something in that. It's a weird, I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but it's got that sort of, that connection with nature is in there as well. But again, I, I totally agree. And I commented in the, in the episode, that intro just, it, de- it almost derails the whole thing. If Louisiana rain wasn't such a great song, you'd almost, that would be one where you'd say, I'm going to skip that because I, I just can't get through this first minute. And I actually have, I edited it out on my, because I have it on my phone um, to listen to in my playlist. I just, I just cut that off because it's like, I don't mind listening to it on its own. And if it was, maybe it is a hidden track even at the end, Put leave a minute's gap after Louisiana Rain and then put it on. But to put it at the beginning, it's so weird. It's and so, so weird. out it of place with everything else. It's, I just don't get it at all. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a country song. And I think, oh, Tom, huge. In a, in a, in maybe in another universe, uh, the Heartbreakers break up or something, and uh, he sw- pivots to country because he could have yeah. been a, like a phenomenal country artist or at least put together a phenomenal a country album uh but uh definitely you can hear the southern roots in this one and uh, you you commented about the lyrics about the um the sailor boys uh i think what he was talking about there what he was talking about san diego and there's a naval base there and i think maybe there was a girl or something and she was dating some of the sailors or he would wanted to date her or something that was that's my guess that's what i took from it as opposed to uh, more of a something about the rain Okay, interesting. That's neat. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. I'll have to I'll go back and re-listen myself and see if I can get that connection as well. Yeah. And it's, like you said, in terms of how you close an album, again, it, it's I would say it's not to bring you down necessarily, but to release. Again, and I think that that's what, again, what Tom did so brilliantly in a lot of songs is that build of tension and then release of tension. You have to have that. It's the same thing that comedians do, right? They'll get you really, really tight. And then the joke, the laugh, the ha-ha, that's the bit where you, okay, good. And that's what Louisiana Rain does for me after the sort of the frenetic nature, especially of what are you doing in my life? Now we just sort of end on a, a nice, mellow, subtle note. And that's the dichotomy between uh, closing an album and closing a concert. Uh, yes. Sometimes, sometimes he would close a, a concert with you know learning to fly acoustic or 
um, all right for now or something. And it was occasional. Yeah. He would just, he would just play solo acoustic and, and sort of close the concert that way. But nine, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, he was, you know, finishing with refugee or American girl or something and just yeah. leaving on that absolute high. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the difference here is that he's wants to leave you in a more pensive mode and bring you down and have that release that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And like I said, with the concert, I pretty much always want to leave on a high. Yeah. Like one, of, one of the one of the best closes I've ever seen was when Alice Cooper, I took my youngest daughter to Alice Cooper and we had second row, dead center in a, quite a small arena. Obviously, it was not that long ago, so he's at the end of things. But So we finished with schools out and um, the wall. So they, they sort of do schools out and then they segue into the wall. We don't need no education. And then all the sort of the banners and the streamers and all the, the, the confetti and everything comes out. And it's just like, that's how you end a show, man. Same thing, American Girl. I think if you close on American Girl, if that's your closer... Man, you, first of all, you've got a great catalog to pull from. And second of all, you're leaving, you're leaving people in the best mood as they're heading home, right? So, Basically out of breath. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, let's get – I wanted to ask you, where would you rank Damn the Torpedoes within the Tom Petty catalog? How does it sort of sit for you? It's definitely, it's definitely I think, the best album pre-Full uh, Moon Fever. Uh, okay. So that puts it up there. Um, I probably would uh, put Wildflowers and Into the Great Wide Open ahead of it. I think even the Wildflowers 2 uh, album that I put together yeah. uh, on Spotify for myself, I think I, I prefer that to this. But um, certainly fourth, fifth of you know his, uh, his release, official releases, I think I would put it there. Um, just, I mean, you... You can't deny the, the the tracks on here. It's just yeah. the I think I think within the context of my p- petty fandom, it, it just took a backseat to some of those uh, other albums later on that I just absolutely loved and, and got me into him in the first place. Yeah, and so that's what we were talking about earlier, right? Your you sort of your ex, your relationship with albums from when you get into an artist moving forward, it's just always going to be a little bit different. And I, I think I would I would sort of agree with that. I, I would put it in roughly around about the same sort of spot. And we'll get into the next time we chat. Hopefully, it uh, will be about hard promises. And I actually sort of, I definitely, I know I'm in the minority with most Petty fans on this, but I actually think that's the better album of the two, just because I think with Hard Promises, they took everything they learned on Damn the Torpedoes. He came in with an equally strong set of songs, but they got, they were just even better. The, the, the studio music, the music, musicianship was better. The relationship with Iveen was established, so that was a lot easier. And it just feels like that album, again, that's sort of the perfect radio rock album, takes it even one step further for me, but... And so then if it's sort of there at that sort of top end or top third within Petty's catalog, how do you compare it against sort of the all-time great American uh, albums, you know, Blonde on Blonde by Dylan or Born to Run, those types of things? I think it's, you know, I, I'm a huge Petty fan, so I put his discography a, a little higher and yeah. his, you know, it, it, he just would finish higher in a lot of the album rankings than yeah. maybe the average fan. Um, I think it's, it was a classic 70s you know early 80s it kind of kept rock going i think into the 80s when it was sort of fading into some new wave or maybe you know there's a lot more of this uh synthesizer music happening and pop happening um and maybe kind of you know kept the kept the genre going a little bit into the early 80s so i think it's a very important album from that standpoint and obviously the you know the side one and the you know four huge huge hits uh, for him and just classic rock staples make it a, a very important album, I think, within the scheme of things. Yeah. And again, you know, talking about if you listen to Shelly Yakis and you listen to Iovine and you listen to other people in the industry at that time, 
it changed the way that rock and roll albums were produced. Like, you know, Stan's drums especially really had a huge impact on what everyone else was doing. You know, Kiss have said, like, they they totally changed their studio recording processes after listening to the album because, oh, actually, you can make drums sound huge but not have them muddy and sort of overwhelm everything else. Like, and that trick of sort of being able to do that and balance everything out perfectly. So sonically, it's just a tremendous achievement. And then, like you said, I mean, so many huge huge hits off it and again he's, he's sort of his his breakout album if you will i know that um the first album got him recognition but this is the album that really that set him on course right yeah this i mean this vaulted him into superstardom yeah. I, I think you look at what it was compared to his first two albums in terms of sales and radio play and all that this put him on a tra- trajectory that um i think he was dreaming of when he came out to california yeah definitely so if you had to pick three favorites and again not necessarily what the best songs are in, in necessarily, but if the, your favorite three that if you only could have three and you had to have a, a Damn the Torpedoes three track playlist, what's going on there? Yeah, and I think I've alluded to this earlier. Uh, Refugee actually wouldn't make the, the three song cut, uh, and that's just my own personal preference. I think it's a phenomenal song, but just I don't need to hear it uh, as often as I need to hear number one, Don't Do Me Like That, number two, Here Comes My Girl, and number three, Even the Losers. I think that's a trilogy from this album that uh, would, would be my EP if I had to. <laughs> try to sell somebody on the album well you know what i don't know if this is going to happen very often as we go through these album wrap-ups but i have exactly the same three songs written down those are exactly my three too um i did have i was thinking well you know do i put a deep cut on there because i could put louisiana rain or what are you doing in my life because i love those songs for different reasons but really again i can't do without any of those three songs because and again i mean even the losers is just it's perfection and don't do me like that is again. I think arguably the strongest album on the al- strongest song on the album, and maybe the strongest song from the first. Again, five or six. So yeah, excellent. We are in agreement. So we'll create that playlist. I'm going to create that playlist. I'm going to put it out online for people to listen to. Yeah, I think uh, that if if fans can check out the deluxe version uh, that's out, you're going to be treated to some some B sides, some tracks that were sort of left off. Um, Surrender has been one of my favorites. It, it's made a few different compilations here and there. And I think they knew it was a good song. Yeah. Uh, but the kind of the story behind it was that they couldn't get it right in the studio. Like they recorded it a bunch of different times, bunch of different sessions for a bunch of different albums and they could yeah. never get it quite right. But I, every versions I've listened to, I think deserved to be on one of their albums at the time. Like, I, I think it's a great, uh, great, great track. So if I, you know, were to replace something, I probably would put surrender in for, uh, Century City, I think that would make the album a little bit better. There, there is also room for more tracks on this album if they wanted to go to 10, 11, 12 tracks, yeah. you know, back with the old the old uh, vinyl limitations. But uh, Nowhere was a track that when listening to this uh, album, you know, in preparation for this podcast, once again, uh, you know, I started listening to these. Nowhere is not one that I had heard uh, very often. And that's a, a good track as well. And I know Casadega is a, a fan favorite. Uh, it, yeah. it has 881,000 streams on Spotify and the most of that second disc, which is interesting. It's sort of a kind of a reggae themed. I yeah. can see why they maybe didn't include it, but it's a fun, a fun track, but certainly I think surrender should have made the album. And if we're playing producer for a day, um, I, I couldn't believe that over the course of three or four albums where it was recorded or tried that right. it didn't make one of those albums. It's really a great song. Well, it's funny, we actually forgot to um, I forgot to do that. We said if there was one track you would change out or you would drop from the album. And again, we're in agreement. That's the one that I would pick. And I had Surrender for um, Shadow of a Doubt, yeah. So, and I think, again, in terms of sequencing, 
maybe you would switch out and put something else in. I wouldn't necessarily put that on side one. I'd maybe drop it onto side two. Or maybe because you've got Louisiana Rain on side two, which is similar in tempo and similar in sort of just general vibe, that it might not work. But yeah, I, I, I'm totally on board with this. I think we're in simpatico here. This is good. I think the only difference is that I would have replaced Century City. You would replace oh, you do Century- Shadow. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that sorry, would right. be that would be the one that just sort of leaves me a little flat. And I know it's a you know for for various reasons I explained earlier. But yeah, I mean, I th- I, th- I think I'd close it. I think I close side one with it because I think it's that's a, that strong of a strong of a track. I think I, well, just, I think it leads pretty well into Don't Do Me Like That as well. Well, I think you know, I smell another playlist coming on. Maybe we'll have to we'll have to put a playlist together and I'll have to listen through I've- and see what it see what it sounds like. I've already made it. <laughs> well, then you'll have to share it with me, and I will share it with my listeners and see what they think. Although I think we might get in a little bit of trouble with this because I think, you know, rearranging track lists and taking tracks off can be a little bit, you can get into a little bit of hot water with the uh, rabid. Certainly with the fans. Fan yes. But do you want to hear the time that I touched Tom Petty's boot? I would love to hear that. Okay. It's a <laughs> fairly quick story. I was uh, living in Memphis at the time. Uh, it was 1999. I had uh, tickets to see... Uh, Tom play uh, in Memphis and then the following night uh, in Nashville. And he was always really good about getting uh, tickets, like good tickets into the fan uh, hands of his fans. And he was one of the first that I remember that, you know, had the $50 fan club and you get the yep. presale and, and uh, I ended up with 16th uh, row seats to see him in Memphis. And I took a, a girl I was dating at the time, just brand new relationship, um, <laughs> a flight attendant. And she was a little kooky. Uh, she wasn't like the biggest Tom Petty fan, but I was like trying to see if, you know, did she have good mu- musical taste, et cetera. And somewhere like midway through the, the main set, she leaves to go to the bathroom and, you know, get a beer or whatever. And she's gone for like a, a long time, like three or four songs. I'm starting to get kind of annoyed. I'm like, you know, this is Tom Petty. Like, why are you not back? And she comes back and I'm like a little bit, okay, you know, you know, where were you? What's going on? And she said, well, I ran into this couple as they were leaving. And they gave us, or they gave me tickets to their seats in the front row. Do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to go. Oh, wow. So I w- went up uh, from the 16th row, went up the side. And it was the, the two seats that she got were like the last two seats um, in the section way off to the side. Yeah. And it was still front row. So we're still a little bit closer than the 16th row. And, um, you know, maybe a song goes by. And this is back in the day when fans were sort of up on this, like still leaning on the stage. There was like yeah. a lower level to the stage and then a higher level to the stage. There was no bar or security in between uh, the <laughs> stage and the front row. So I noticed that um, there was a couple that, you know, we're getting towards the end of the main set, probably have three or four, you know, more songs and a couple like leaves dead center yeah. their spots on the stage and like, just like leaves the row, like they're leaving the show. And so I was like, let's go. So I <laughs> ran over there, came in. So there's some room behind me because there's the row of seats. And so we're just leaning on the stage and literally looking up at Tom. He's three feet away. Oh, and he, and he's playing, um, you know, the closing tracks to his main set. Um, and uh, one of them was, uh, you know, Free Fallen. And I saw he's sitting there playing it with my, my favorite song, one of my favorite songs by him. And I saw the guy next to me um, put like cup put put his hands out like in a little cup shape, and I didn't know what that was all about. Um, and I figured it out that he was asking Tom to like drop pick. a pick. I didn't, you know, I haven't been in the front row that often to, to, to experience <laughs> that. So I did that as well. And then Tom finishes free falling, 
um, drops the pick. And with my cat, like reflexes, I put my hand on the, on the pick and I, I pull it in and I have it here. It's oh no way. It says, uh, I don't know if you can see that it says rock lives on it. So yeah. that's the pick that Tom Petty played free falling with. And then uh, as the concert goes on, they go off of their encore, come back on is playing uh, American girl. And like, he steps down as this is all happening. And so he's literally a, like I could reach out and touch him, like touch his boot. Yeah. And I wanted to do, I wanted to do something because it was the only <laughs> chance I was going to ever get a chance to like, I don't know. He's like a rock God to me. Right. So yeah. I just reached out and I made my hand into a fist and I just tapped his suede boot three times. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. I, what am I doing? Like, this is, I could get kicked out for this. Right. Yes. And so I look up and he's looking straight down at me. With a, with a big toothy grin, like, yeah. look at this lunatic, <laughs> six foot, eight inch fan. But I mean, I wasn't like grabbing his, you know, yeah. like doing anything. Like I just tapped his foot three times <laughs> and then I looked up and he was looking straight at me and I was like, oh my God, we're never going to forget this. Um, and then the, you know, the show ended and that was the end of it. And that was like my, that's my Tom Petty brush with fame uh, story. Like that was, that was an incredible moment there in Memphis. <laughs> I think that's one of those. That's one of those nights, though. That probably it's one of the ones that he would remember, because it's not like because you can people grabbing at you. So you're going to get that for sure, and you're going to yeah. get you know. Like, but someone randomly doing tapping your foot three times. That's a bit. This is signal. I'm like, against. Oh, <laughs> Tom, Pet- Tom Petty's right here. You know, I was like, oh, and I was just like, just gently. I was yeah, like, oh yeah, my yeah. god, Tom Petty's boot. I got to touch it. Well, I mean, you got to take your opportunities when they come, right? And you yeah, wouldn't I do, now you wouldn't do it on the first song because you wouldn't get kicked no. out on the first song. But <laughs> I felt like if I got kicked out, it'd be the last 30, 25, 30 seconds. It was probably worth it. <laughs> so six foot eight, you said. Yeah, six foot eight. So that's well, probably so you're leave an impression. Might, yeah, he might remember me. I think he looked at me the next night in Nashville, going, "Oh, that's the same lunatic from the, from the <laughs> previous." Yeah, security. <laughs> we, were, we were in the second row on that in that show. Uh, so it was that was a pretty good uh, weekend there. Um, I did want to talk quickly about because you mentioned it earlier. Wildflowers 2, the playlist that you put together and you kindly sent to me. So just tell my listeners a little bit about that. And I'm going to put a link to that in the episode notes too for you. Oh, thank you. Uh, it was just a kind of a little project that I had when uh, the Wildflowers and all the rest came out. Uh, there was also a few stray Wildflowers songs that made some other um, releases that he had. Uh, and I kind of wanted to put all the Wildflowers two stuff like the the leftovers into one playlist and then also sequence it in a way that I thought he might sequence it uh really paying attention special attention to the tempo acoustic versus rock etc and I think I I did put together one that and I'd love listening to it um I probably listened to this album 50 to 100 times already um and it it, it takes some of the the tracks which I th- from the she's the one soundtrack yeah uh which I think was kind of criminally underrated, um, but it was not a normal like album release for them. They didn't tour really to support it. He got involved in that project and thought that he would be able to, you know, enlist his friends and musicians yeah. to sort of record all the song. He ended up having to do it all himself. So he took some of the wildflowers tracks and California is like one of my favorite songs of his of all time. So um, that sort of anchors the side one. And um, it's a, it's 15 tracks. It's almost exact same length as uh, wildflowers one 
and it's i think it, it flows really well there's bangers there's acoustic songs there's, there's everything on it and uh i appreciate you listening to it and tweeting it out earlier and, and putting it in the show notes because i think uh it's a fun way to listen to this uh group of songs they weren't all put together on that all the rest like uh driving down to georgia wasn't on there girl yeah. on lst wasn't necessarily on there lonesome dave was a, a wildflower track uh, or a leftover wildflowers track that uh, didn't make the all the rest. And then you saw me coming, you know, ended up on a different sort of wildflowers release. So having them all together in, a, in sort of a, a sequential playlist that that works uh, is a lot of fun for me uh, to put together. And I would say to my listeners, definitely check that out. Like I said, I'll put this in the episode notes and I'll, I'll put a link online this week on social media. When you listen to wildflowers and you do sort of get into that, this is the, this is the flow of how these songs should go. I definitely completely fell in love with that playlist that you put together because it, it, you're right. It's got it's got the same it's got the same feel of con- control of pacing. Let's let's put it that way, right? We we sort of you're not building too much. You're not front loading all the the strongest songs out of that group of songs because Wildflowers doesn't do that either. You know, Change Your Mind is like the the, the closer from Wildflowers again is just a a tremendous tremendous song and it's left till 15th place on an album you know let, let's forget about 10th for american girl that song coming at 15th so i think you did a great job of balancing that out so again i'll leave that in the episode notes um and i'll let people comment on that and hopefully we can get some people listen to it and maybe one day you never know maybe we'd have a, a second vinyl release so, we, can, we can get the estate on board i was thinking about putting it i don't really listen to vinyl but i was thinking about getting a vinyl made of this just to have it yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> be fun. that's the kind of nerd i am oh totally and i mean you could you get that done for well, you'd have to you'd need a double. hundred bucks, maybe. It's about hundred bucks, yeah. If, well, come, come to Canada, go back in Canada. It's a little bit cheaper up here. Our dollar's not quite as strong. <laughs> okay, so that's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our, our recap and where the plan is that we're going to do this for each of the albums moving forward, or as many as John can do, given his uh, his hectic schedule. Um, don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. You can, of course, find me on YouTube. Uh, so go follow, like, subscribe as applicable. Um, and again, please leave a rating or a review if you haven't done that already. They do help. Um, again, my project isn't affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. If you're looking for Tom's music, please visit all the official channels um, and go to the YouTube channel first. Uh, and please visit TomPetty.com for official merchandise. Don't forget to check out Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member of those groups as they're excellent communities and they're well worth checking out. Um, And I'm going to throw it over quickly to John so that he can let you know where you can find his football site and his podcast because, again, if you're into those things, you should definitely give them a listen because they're very well rated. Yeah, if you're interested in fantasy football at all, check out uh, our site, uh, 444.com. It's the number 4-F-O-R, the number 4.com. And my uh, Twitter handle is 444 uh underscore john j-o-h-n so i've got a few followers over there if you're interested in in my fantasy takes we got the nfl draft coming up or it probably will be uh done by the time this episode posts but it's a busy time uh then i'll have some uh, some time off and then uh, back back at it in july and august all right man okay so until we meet again keep listening to and sharing tom's music try to be kind try to say i love you to someone at least once a day stay safe and healthy and i'll be back with you and john and i'll be back with you later um i'll be back with you next week with uh to talk about the first track from her promises the waiting bye-bye